So the journey and quest that we are always on at Beth Messiah, Messianic Studies Institute, is one of better understanding and instantiating, that is providing a real life instance of, what God is doing in history by means of his own chosen way of working through Jewish particularism with a universal horizon involving all nations. If every MSI visiting scholar symposium has been about bringing the fruit of important biblical scholarship to bear on our thinking, speaking, doing, living, and being as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah Yeshua, then this year's symposium represents a bumper crop of potentially transforming fruit. Dr. Ralph Corner is academic dean and professor of biblical studies at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. However, he is not an academician who seeks mere knowledge or scholarly renown. I can verify that he's called by God and moved by God's Ruach to do research that yields new insight and more importantly, wisdom. I'm talking about the wisdom that is spoken among those that are mature and not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are being brought to nothing. It involves that which no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has imagined when it comes to the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Like us, Dr. Corner is all about bringing the inauguration of the new covenant with its new creation to bear on all aspects of the communities in which we live. I have found his work to be more finely nuanced and more whole and complete than almost all other work when it comes to the topics like the origin and meaning of Ecclesia, the New Jerusalem, and Israel's future today and tomorrow. So most important during this year's symposium, let the one who has an ear hear what God's Ruach is saying at this critical hour of God's 21st century history. Lest we fall short, even in our expectations of the Olam Haba, the world to come. Please welcome Dr. Ralph Corner. Shabbat Shalom. It is an honor to be with you this morning and even a greater honor to um, be involved in helping lead us to the throne of grace. I want to reflect this morning on the joy that you are experiencing in being together as a congregation in the building and able to meet face to face and again um, experience the beauty of the presence of God as his people gather together uh, in assembly as a congregation. My particular church uh, here in Edmonton is Northgate Baptist, and uh, we have that privilege next week to begin in-building services again. Our last time together was in September, and uh, we are very much uh, anticipating and looking forward to that privilege. Um, actually, uh, anyway, I'll leave it that. Um, this congregation I'm a part of has, um, I used to pastor there in the 1990s, 
And I just love the people of God at Northgate. And we've been members there for over 31 years. And it's been a good place to uh, root and grow and mature and develop. Um, but as with you, our congregation has struggled on how do we enter into this new normal? The new normal of COVID. And as with you, we have had to change our thinking and our practices in ways that we've shifted our priorities from focusing upon the building as the center point of what we are and who we do to building community. We've had to shift priorities from programs as the basis and foundation of what we do to people as being more important than programs which we have had to change and shift and even lose in the process. We shifted from an emphasis on edifice to an emphasis on edification. And this is really important because even the English word that we self-identify by as the followers of the Yeshua, the word church, is intended to translate the Greek word in the New Testament, ekklesia. Now, ekklesia did not mean a building in its first century context. We talk about going to church. The New Testament talks about being the church, but the church is people, not a building. And the word ecclesia literally just meant assembly, meeting, or gathering. And so in the first century, the followers of Yeshua called themselves ecclesia to communicate that we are a community building community, which helps inform our practice and our, our new normals that we've had to live into as God's people. Well, let's go back 1900 years to a people of God who are facing a devastating new normal. It's post-temple destruction. 70 CE, the Romans destroyed the temple, sacked Jerusalem. And now the Jewish people are wrestling with a whole new question on how do we live into halakha in a post-temple destruction era? Well, two Jewish apocalypse writings struggled with this new normal. Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch, both written about the, 90, about the 90s CE. They came up with two different answers. Fourth Ezra said there was a new Jerusalem that was existing from time eternal and a new land that was going to now become on earth a restoration for God's people. Second Baruch said there's a new Jerusalem in heaven that is not going to descend. Land restoration is not essential to moving forward. Different solutions to the same problem. One famous Midrashic text, struggling with in a post-temple era, how do we, what does Yom Kippur mean? What is, how does atonement going to come to be a reality? This text said, the temple and its, and its sacrifices do not alone expiate our sins. Rather, we have an equivalent way of making atonement, and that is through deeds of human kindness. 
in the Jerusalem of the post 70 time frame, the Jews had to go from a building to building community through acts of kindness. They had to go from a sacrificial program to focus on the people whom that program was developed for. They had to go from an edifice mentality to an edification mentality. John, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 21 and 22, has a vision of not the old Jerusalem, but of a new Jerusalem. And he, in our day today, I invite us to the new normal that he envisioned as congregations of Yeshua in Roman Asia, and as we instantiate that vision into our congregational context, wherever we may be found today. He looked at a new normal in the future, this new Jerusalem. We're going to look at that this morning. But we're going to ask the question, is it a city in which we will dwell in the future? Or is John communicating something a little bit different? Is it a city which we, which we will become? Or even a city which we already are? Are we already this new normal? If so, then that invites us to shift from a building mentality, churches, buildings as a focal point of our gatherings, from building to acts of kindness to build community, from programs to people, from an edifice mentality to edification. Let's walk through uh, this time, and I'm just going to, again, just bring us before the throne and ask uh, Yeshua by Ruach to um, allow us to experience deeply the presence of God in our midst as we seek to hear what the Spirit is saying to his ecclesia, to his congregations, not just in Roman Asia, but right now in Columbus, Ohio. Dear Yeshua, we come because you, as has been read in Hebrews, went before us, taking your own blood as an atonement for our sin eternally, once and for all, so we could enter eternally and once and for all into the very presence of God the Father. And dear Ruach, you are the one who now takes our heavenly reality, our heavenly life, and instantiates it in our daily lived realities. Would we hear what you are saying to us as we um, enter into the visionary experience of John and again hear and see with new eyes how we can be renewed and have a new normal of how we live as the people of God in this world. In Jesus, your name. Amen. I'm going to share my screen and walk through um, the message that I have uh, continued to focus on on the New Jerusalem. And uh, you'll see me in the bottom corner. And as I said to the tech, how fitting, a corner in the corner. Okay, enough jokes. Um, here's my share screen on what I wish to move us through uh, as we walk through. So the, the title for the symposium is the book of Revelation, an apocalyptic journey into an eternal Jewish identity. 
And of course, as we read chapters 21 and 22, we come to recognize that that eternal Jewish identity is the New Jerusalem. And Revelation is a very Jewish book, and so we've been looking at that last night, and we'll continue to look at that in the sessions this afternoon and, and tomorrow. But for this morning, we want to talk about this eternal Jewish identity, identity which is very um, visually um, concretized for John in his visionary journey in the throne room. The title for this morning's message is New Jerusalem, the City of God, the People of God. And I've already hinted at that. So let's look at Revelation uh, chapter 21 and to see if this question bears truth. If Yeshua followers really are the New Jerusalem, how do we then live as the City of God in our communities? We don't want to just look at uh, biblical truth. We want to live that truth out in faithful ways in our communities. So I want to explore both elements, the biblical foundation, and then what do we move, how do we move from that foundation into our lived realities as God's people. Here's the roadmap of where we will be going uh, with today's session. There's three key questions that I will explore. First of all, we'll examine features of the New Jerusalem that John has envisioned. Secondly, we'll explore New Jerusalem as both temple city and non-temple uncity. So in this exploration, we're going to move from the original historical Jerusalem and look at Jewish perspectives, Hebrew Bible, Tanakh perspectives on the city of Jerusalem and New Jerusalem and move up to John's day to create a context for the milieu in which John is communicating his vision and how that would have um, connected with existing Jewish expectations and hopes and dreams. And then we'll look at examples of how can we live out this potential that I'm highlighting that New Jerusalem is a people, not a place as it's symbolized. How do we live that out in our communities? And we'll be talking about some ways, even here in the city of Edmonton, some models that can are transferable to other communities that might be of assistance and help uh, for you as a congregation as well. Features of the New Jerusalem. What is this New Jerusalem that John? has seen well let's go to revelation 21 verses 9 to 10 and uh listen for a surprise there is something that is being said in this passage that would have turned john's head he's going what is what just happened what was john listen to this passage or something odd in it what was john shown that he did not expect Verse nine, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem. What did John not expect? Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, there is something else odd about the new Jerusalem that we will look at as we progress in our time this morning. First of all, there are no buildings mentioned in the Jerusalem, not even the temple. So those of you who may be expecting mansions in New Jerusalem, 
perhaps you might need to revise that expectation. And the New Jerusalem is described as a cube and only has one street of gold, quite uncity-like. And a cube, if you're thinking of a cube, you might go, oh, one and one equals two. The Holy of Holies in the temple was a cube. And the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cube. The tabernacle is 10 cubits. A cubit is about a foot. Unless you're using a royal cubit, then it's a foot and a half. But let's go with a foot. So it's about 10 feet cubed in the tabernacle, about 20 feet cubed in the temple. And this new Jerusalem needs no sun or moon. God and the Lamb are its light and the lamp. Something odd about that description. I wonder what John must have thought. I wonder what we are thinking. Even further, and this is the head turner for John, something odd is that in the New Jerusalem, it seems like a people have become the place. The angel said, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And what was John expecting to see? Well, the bride are those for whom Yeshua is Lord and Savior. So he's expecting to see a woman. As in fourth Ezra's vision, he sees a woman symbolized as a Jerusalem. But John, when he's taken to this great high mountain, does he see a woman? And is this new Jerusalem not only future, but is it even now on earth? And we'll look at that a little bit more later. And I apologize, I should say that diagram on the right is the size of this holy, heavenly, new Jerusalem, if you were to place it on the actual um, earth itself. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that size, and I'll get back to this diagram. It's a massive image and vision John has. So well, let's back up. I'm going to review with you the six different theses that I'm going to suggest as we move through the book of Revelation's vision of the New Jerusalem. First of all, the New Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the eschatological Jewish temple city, but it's not presented as a temple city. It contains no temple and displays very unlike, uncity-like qualities, as we've already um, highlighted. The New Jerusalem is presented as the eschatological fulfillment of the three holy places of the land of Shem, the Garden of Eden, Mount Zion, and Mount Sinai. It covers them all with its very gargantuan size. The New Jerusalem is presented as a cubic holy of holies, which extends the dwelling of the Lord over the entire recreated earth. And as the unseen city, the New Jerusalem may even double as the eschatological replacement for the land it itself. It's interesting, we'll see that the New Jerusalem does not actually descend to the earth. It's never said to do that. John sees it from a great high mountain on the earth. So a bit of an interesting change of shift than we might perhaps expect. Fifth, the New Jerusalem is not just a future place, but also a future people. In other words, the covenantal people of God do not just live in the city. They are portrayed as the very city itself. The angel said, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. John's expecting to see some image of the people of God 
Instead, he sees the new Jerusalem. One and one equals two is the bride symbolized in this new Jerusalem imagery. And six, the new Jerusalem may not only be a future people, but also the present people of God. Are we right now the living, invisible reality on earth of the new Jerusalem? If we are, how does that change our living? What does that mean about us not only bringing the presence of God wherever we are, but being the presence of God when we gather as congregations and when we live out in our worlds together? New Jerusalem as temple city and non-temple uncity. So at this point, I want now to just, as I said, go back and review the progress, the theological, ideological development of New Jerusalem imagery in Jewish and in Tanakh sources. To give you a sense of what John's very Jewish uh, congregations would have no doubt been thinking about when they heard the new Jerusalem, all these allusions back to previous expectations. So let's just start at the very beginning and we'll go to a historical survey of the original Jerusalem. So from its capture by David in 1000 BC until the time of Solomon, it grew from just 12 acres to 32 acres. Now 32 acres isn't that big. When I was living, uh, I live in Edmonton, uh, we used to live in Calgary, and for those of you who uh, know sports, um, perhaps not Canadian sports, but for Edmonton and Calgary, we are rival cities. We are sports teams. You do not cheer for the other sports team. And in fact, you cheer for everybody else who plays against your competitive uh, city. So I was in Calgary, was there for many years, and we lived on an acreage. We had 20 acres. So I'm thinking 20 acres of land, I'd rip around on my motorcycle and it wouldn't take very long. And Jerusalem historically was only 32 acres um, until, until the time of Solomon. So not that big, but the vision, the expectation of Jerusalem increases as the um, Jewish people reflect upon the hope um, ahead of them when God intersects into human history. So the location of the tabernacle was in Jerusalem, and it was the political and religious center, obviously, of the Jewish people. We move further in the Tanakh to a new Jerusalem presented as a temple city. And this is found in Ezekiel 40 to 48, an extensive description of this, this eschatological temple city, this temple city that will be the reality, the restoration in and on the land for God's people when God dwells in their midst. Now, the name Jerusalem does not occur. Uh, the temple city is called Yahweh is there. This emphasizes the return of God's glory, which departed the temple in Ezekiel uh, chapter 8 to 11. Some of the features, uh, basically, of this progressive unfolding, you have three sets of walls. And you can read the descriptions there, but put a foot per cubic, cubit, and you can see that at the end, the square temple land was about 25,000 feet um, square. So a reasonable size, but the size of the city is going to exponentially increase as 
further reflections in Jewish writings develop. We come to one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, envisioning the New Jerusalem as a temple city. And this is called the description of the New Jerusalem, uh, but it's not one text alone. It's a compilation of five different uh, related texts and put together as one, um, um, one document by Michael Houghton. Uh, he's envisioned one way to put them all together. And in there, the, the description, and it's called the description of the New Jerusalem in terms of official terminology in Dead Sea Scrolls uh, context. It was not created by the Kumon community, uh, but was stored there. And it was composed sometime between 200 and 150 BCE. And it had a rectangular wall, which now moves from the um, 25,000 feet of Ezekiel's um, outer wall to now about 50,000 feet uh, to the outer wall. Or in modern terminology, the very bottom there, you'll see 26 kilometers for us Canadians. Of course, that's me. Uh, so in miles, for my wonderful neighbors to the south, 15.6 miles by 11 miles. Well, that's getting pretty reasonable. That's not a bad size for an eschatological city. In fact, um, it allowed an ultimate population of about 633,000 people. We see in its residential area, there's 240 blocks, uh, 120 homes in each. That makes 280,000 homes with 22 residents per home, sort of a communal um, residential context, which equals 633,000. That's a pretty good size. City of Edmonton, we're just over a million people. So it's about two thirds the size of the city of Edmonton. That's a significant sized building uh, for an for an eschatological expectation. Another temple city, uh, well, temple anyway, that we get in Jewish writings, it, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, is the Temple Scroll, 11QT. And the name Jerusalem, again, does not occur there, like in Ezekiel. Um, and again, it was not written by the Qumran Essenes, like the description of the New Jerusalem. And why is that? Because the Essenes at Qumran um, they were very insular, you might say. Uh, they, first of all, would never allow any non-Jewish person to become part of their community. And secondly, they even um, were very pejorative against the temple establishment of that day. So they were totally against the Sadducees and the temple religious institution. They felt that they had gone astray. So they're very much a closed off community. But the Temple Scroll opens up the participation in the temple to Gentiles. The enemies of Israel are depicted as also being able to worship the Lord in the restored temple. That's a brilliant vision. And that's a vision that we see lived into and expressed by Paul in particular in the New Testament scriptures, particularly where he identifies the people of God as a living temple. And this living temple, the ecclesia, is comprised of Jews and non-Jews, both able to live fully into their cultural identities. They don't have to change their cultural identity. Jews can be fully Torah observant. Non-Jews can live within their cultural identities, but they're all together under Yeshua in the ecclesia, which is the temple, living temple of God. 
At the 11 QT, the Temple City, the sanctuary complex, the outer court is 1,700 feet. So again, you know, almost more than triple the size of Ezekiel's Temple City. Um, but again, this is not an eschatological one. It's uh, envisioned as the temple that uh, Moses should have, uh, uh, that, that should have been built um, in, in future years. Well, let's look at Revelation's New Jerusalem in this context now. And I call the New Jerusalem a non-temple uncity, as you've already seen. So New Jerusalem is non-temple. There is no temple within its walls, and it specifically says that there is no temple. It's very explicit about that, which is different than the cities of Ezekiel, uh, 40 to 48, uh, 11Q temple itself, and the city uh, New Jerusalem in the Dead Sea Scroll, the description of the New Jerusalem. It's an uncity, and we've already highlighted some of these pieces. There's only one street of gold. So it's like a small town, a small rural town where you got Main Street, and that is it. Uh, only one street of gold is mentioned. Now, again, we need to be careful. Um, just because there is um, uh, presence of absence doesn't mean there's absence of presence. So just because no other streets are mentioned doesn't necessarily mean there are no other streets. So we always need to be careful with that assumption. But Revelation at this point is only highlighting one street of gold. Uh, there's only one tree highlighted, and that's the tree of life. And this time, it's interesting. It's not just one single tree as in the Garden of Eden. But in this case, the tree of life is multiple trees of life on either side of this river producing fruit, one different fruit for each month of the year. There's only one river, and it flows from the throne of God itself, almost like Ezekiel's vision. And there are no mansions, no human residences, as we see in the uh, Dead Sea Scroll, the description of New Jerusalem. So it's a fairly empty city, and a very limited city in terms of architectural features. Uh, what's going on here? Well, it's fulfilling uh, a number of Jewish hopes. So first of all, it's depicting itself as the restored Eden. So environmentally, we see this river of living water. And in the Garden of Eden, we had the four rivers um, there as well. And the tree of life is specifically mentioned, which we see back in the Garden of Eden as well. And there is one action that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden, which will never, ever be experienced again by humanity in the New Jerusalem. And that is the removal of the Adamic curse. So we have here complete restoration, but not going back to the, new, the Garden of Eden, but filling it out exponentially more than the original Garden of Eden. Fulfillment is exponentially greater than the original um, of God's creation. And that's consistent in the book of Revelation. Well, Revelation's New Jerusalem is a cubic holy of holies, as we've already highlighted. The city and perhaps also the wall of the New Jerusalem is a cube, and it measures, here's the measurement, 4,800,000 feet cubed, 1,400 miles wide and long and high, 1,400 miles high. 
Now at night, you can look out and you can see the space station up there in the sky. You know, I'm not sure I should have looked it up how many miles, but you know what, 150 miles up in the, up in the sky. The New Jerusalem is like 10 times higher for a Jewish readership, even a Gentile readership. They're going, oh my good, I can't even, I can't even imagine this. I can't fathom 1400 miles. Like in essence, that communicates that heaven and earth have joined. It's the, it's everything in the heavens. It's higher than anybody could ever imagine. It's saying heaven and earth are now one. And God is in the center of this newness and the lamb is at the center and the spirit is the river of living water at the center. And the presence of God is now complete and full in every single square inch of this massive new Jerusalem. No matter how far you are from the center, the presence of God is full and rich. Not like in Ezekiel's temple city where there's progressive loss of holiness as you get further from the center. In Revelation, it's everywhere you are fully in the presence of God. If we are the people of God, we need to be fully the presence of God and all we do and say. Well, here we have this diagram again. So here we have the red square. That's the size of the new Jerusalem. If you were to place it literally upon the earth. And we need to understand, obviously, that Revelation uses numbers symbolically. So the number seven, it's symbolic of perfection, completion. The number 12 is symbolic of God's chosen people. The 12 gates in New Jerusalem, the 12 foundations. 144,000, 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Symbolic numbers uh, for something. Revelation, the size 1,400 miles is actually 12,000 stadia. It's a Roman measurement. So 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So it's symbolic of all of these illusions. But here we have where you could place it. If you centered it in, uh, in Israel and you extend it outward, you're covering up to Greece, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, etc. We'll move it to the left a little bit later and show how the New Jerusalem is also a counter-imperial image. Not just a restoration of Jewish hopes, but a demonstration of the destruction of imperial power that's anti-God. And we talked about the Holy of Holies being a cube, and the New Jerusalem being this massive cube. But what's the theological significance of the New Jerusalem as a cubic Holy of Holies? If applied literally, its wall encompasses the ideal boundaries of the land, the land of Shem, the three holy places of Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, and the Garden of Eden. This cubic Jerusalem even encompasses the very city of Rome itself. And in Revelation, Rome's called Babylon the Great. And so if you take that square and you put Jerusalem in the bottom right corner, and that square shifts over to the left, it will easily sit over top of Italia in the top left of that diagram, which is sit over Rome. The new Jerusalem is going to crush Rome, so to speak, when it comes down, if it comes down to earth. Revelation is supersessionist of Rome, but not supersessionist of Israel and Jew as an ethnic identity that Gentiles can now be part of. 
this new Jerusalem might even be a symbol of the restored land itself based on its gargantuan um, size. You need to understand in that ancient context in Roman Asia, where John is writing to, the everyday person, even most everybody, wouldn't have no visual concept of 1,400 miles. Uh, they don't have maps. They don't have satellites. They don't have pictures of the earth. They don't have any way of knowing what, what, what does the earth look like. So they couldn't even imagine that's they could imagine easily that size being the entire created land. And fourth Ezra, uh, it talks about a time will come when the city which is not seen shall appear in the land which is now hidden will be disclosed. Revelation similar. New Jerusalem is pre-existent. It descends. It wasn't created in the future. Could the new Jerusalem be the fulfillment of the hope in fourth Ezra as the pre-existent unseen city and even of the pre-existent hidden land? A question to ponder. As we move to our final segment, I want to unpack this practically for us. So the new Jerusalem as a people over a place. What does that mean for us as God's people in our communities, in our cities, our towns, our rural context, how do we live out this reality that we are pictured as this new Jerusalem? Well, Gundry wrote an article in the Old Testamentum in 1987 where he unpacks this and he claims, uh, as I am following up with, that uh, the new Jerusalem is a people who are placed. And we read those verses and we saw how John's expecting to see the bride, but he ends up seeing the new Jerusalem as a fulfillment of that expectation. And this, this uh, sense of people of God as temple city have precedence. So the Qumran community self-presents itself as a living temple in 1Q Sarek, or the community rule. And there uh, they, they say that the council of the community, so the leadership of the community at Qumran, are a holy house for Israel, that is a temple, living temple, and the foundation of the Holy of Holies of Aaron. Kodesh Kodshim Aharon. We also see the people of God as a living temple city in Qumran, as this future city of, uh, in Isaiah chapter 54. We see this kesher or interpretation on Isaiah 54.11. And there, the leaders at Qumran describes themselves, the council, they will found the council of the Ahad, the Ahad is the, uh, the uh, distinctive name of the community of Qumran, they will found the council of the Ahad, the priests and the people, the assembly of their elect, and they become this foundation of the new Jerusalem. So we have symbols of the people of God in the new Jerusalem, 12 gates, 12 foundations, the wall, First uh, Peter talks about Believers being living stones in the temple. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the living temple, the messianic people of God. Revelation's New Jerusalem. Is it not just a, pre, uh, a future people of God, but could it also be a present people of God? Is there a present presence in the heavenly throne room? Well, I'll suggest invisibly that the rainbow may be that implicit depiction of the new Jerusalem in chapter four already, when John first goes to the throne room. So you imagine this new Jerusalem, the lamb and God are at the center. And it says they are the light and the lamp of this new Jerusalem. 
The wall of the Jerusalem is described as jasper, clear as crystal. You put the light of God himself in the center of a square cubic wall that is clear as crystal. What comes out the other side? What do you do when to shine a light through a prism? You get a rainbow. And this rainbow encircles a throne. The sense of encirclement is unique. Encirclement of the throne is unique in the book of Revelation. So even there's a visible presence, perhaps, that picks up on this invisible presence. The 24 elders who encircle the throne. Is it the 12 tribes plus the 12 apostles together representing the gathered people of God before the throne as the 24 elders? So you have a double encirclement. What happens when you move this to the 21st century? Well, we need to inaugurate this eschatology. And if John is the author, uh, it makes sense that he have this perspective because John talks about eternal life in his gospel. Zoe, it's life now. It's not just life in the future. The synoptic gospels generally focus on future life, life after death. But John is saying God's life is available now in our lived reality. We are alive in Christ now. And that life continues unendingly beyond human history into God's eternity. It's a present experience. As the church, we need to inaugurate this eschatology, our future hope, into our ecclesiology, into how we live as the people of God, as the ecclesia of God. We need to become who we already are. We are the new Jerusalem with God fully present in our midst. We need to become the presence of God fully in our world. And one expression of that is acts of kindness. And I'll go past this one. So how do we live as a new Jerusalem in our communities? How do we live in the geographical region where the congregational building is located, in the communities where your ecclesia congregational members live? It's as easy as, I would say, A, B, C, D. You, as a congregation using a strength-based approach. And this is what we see in the city of Edmonton uh, unfolding. How can God's people become the presence of God in the earthy communities through A, B, C, D? And it's called asset-based community development. And it's been suggested by Brueggemann, obviously you're probably familiar with him, um, and in a book, Another Kingdom, and initially in the Abundant Community book. And ABCD uh, involves assessing the resources, skills, and experiences available in a community. You go as a congregation and you say, what are the assets that are in this community that we can develop further? You organize the community around the issues that move its members into action. Then you determine and take appropriate action. In Edmonton, we have this. Uh, city blocks are organized by neighborhood block connectors, you might say, who look at, around at the assets, the resources in a neighborhood. They talk to neighbors and say, hey, uh, you've got a ladder, a, a you know, 20-foot ladder, great. Um, I'll make a, a, a list here and everybody in the community can know what we all have they're willing to share with each other. You want to do a book club? Great. I'll see who else wants to do a book club. You build community like the, the Midrashic comment, acts of kindness. We live and be the presence of God and create abundant community. There's some spiritual principles then. So what resources has God already placed within your neighborhood? What is God doing? Join him there. Listen to people. Don't go to talk to people. Tell them things in your neighborhoods. Go to hear, go to understand who they are. 
what they love, what they value. Hear that and see what arises to show you, oh, God's at work here. I can build upon this. Inaugurate ways to invigorate people in your community for greater wholeness or shalom with community life in your community. Go from building to building community. Uh, a pastor here in Edmonton did that. His name is Howard Lawrence. And he began as a pastor in one area of Edmonton and began walking around the community, talking to people, finding out what they value, um, how they could as a congregation serve and pray, but even more so how they could connect people in the community um, as being the sort of spider in the middle of the web. And the city of Edmonton saw what was happening, that amazing community was developing. And they said, hey, can you replicate this in other neighborhoods in Edmonton? And so he has been their consultant and it's become an official part of the city of Edmonton's policy. Uh, they even provide $500 a year for a neighborhood to do a block party, if you want. Uh, they want to build community in neighborhoods and they found that community leagues have not been sufficiently successful at it. This is a grassroots based approach. And it's basically a go and be approach. It's a go, it's great commissionists, go. Uh, we wanna build abundant communities. And like Jesus said in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, uh, he says, go. But you might also translate, it's a, a participle. You could just say, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going, involve people in your life as you are going. Phone people, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. You want to come join me? As you are going, you see God intersecting in your life. Listen to him as Moses and the burning bush. Don't miss where God is present. Listen for him. As you are going, be attentive to the spirit. And then be is the great commandmentness. Love, build community, lovingly facilitate holistic shalom, social, emotional, physical, polis tickle. <laughs> polis is the Greek word for city. Um, be an ecclesia, be the gathering and spiritual wellness in your neighborhood block. Dr. Karen Wilk here in Edmonton is a great contact person. She works with Forge Canada, where they prioritize um, how do you, they have a seminar called Into the Neighborhood, where they help people think about how can we get into our neighborhood and be the presence of God in the fullness of what it means to build community, to live acts of kindness. Her community built this gazebo. They built a whole playground park for their neighborhood. She and their church helped coordinate it. Not for spiritual gain, just for shalom gain itself because they want to be the presence of god and god wherever he goes builds community the devil does not so my last question is the new jerusalem how will you be the city of god in your communities amen and may we be it so blessings on you